righty, guys. Well, welcome again. Um, we're going to open up from God's Word. We believe that God's Word is from God. It's not just words written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, these are words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit, the eternal God who made everything. Um, and so even as we come to a passage today in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, when it talks about slaves and masters, even a passage like this is inspired by God, is given by God for the good of his people. Uh, and so we're going to see what the Lord has to teach us in this passage, even though I'm assuming none of us here is a slave or a master. So Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And just by way of a little bit of context, if you remember, we, um, we've been looking at the household code all the way through. Um, so we've been looking at what it looks like in the Christian household in Ephesus. Husbands and wives, children and parents and fathers, and now we come to the final members of the household. And in a Roman household, it was very common to have slaves. Um, it was, you know, most people had one or two or three slaves. And so Paul addresses them in their real household situation. And we're going to see how the gospel redeems and transforms even something that we go, whoa, slavery, how, you know, why is this even here? We're going to see how the gospel speaks to it. Um, and we're going to see just how beautiful the gospel is this morning. That's my hope. So Ephesians chapter 6, <clears throat> verses 5 through 9. Um, and it's going to say in this passage, bond servants, um, but I'm going to translate that slaves. Uh, the word bond servant there is changed by the ESV because their predominant market that they're trying to sell Bibles to is in America. And you mentioned the word slavery in America, and it has all these connotations to African-American, slave trade, etc. But the word bondservant just means slave. And so uh, I'm just going to use the word slave because it's, it's the better way. It conjures up the actual image that the word connotes. So slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, may you bless the preaching of your word this morning. Amen. Well, the title of today's passage is creatively Slaves and masters. So we've done husbands and wives, children and fathers, slaves and masters. Uh, and we come to a passage today which, you know, immediately looking at it, you may be thinking, what relevance could this possibly have to my life? I mean, why would I now sit here for the next 40 minutes and hear a sermon on slaves and masters, seeing as though I'm not in that particular um, scenario anymore? Uh, but one of the things we're going to see as we jump into this passage is that it connects all of what Paul has been trying to do in the book of Ephesians and takes it even to the lowest level of society. 
You see, all throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has been demonstrating that Jesus Christ is the king of the universe. And that as king of the universe, God's plan is to unite all things in heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. And that unification of all things brings together Jew and Gentile, husbands and wives, children and fathers, and now slaves and masters. We're going to see that the power of the gospel is able to bring unity and reconciliation and transformation to all different types of people no matter your station, no matter where you are in life. We're going to see that the gospel has something to say and something to do in every sphere of our domain and our existence. And so even though none of us fit into this category, as we look on to how Paul applies the gospel into this very tough um, particular situation in Ephesus, we're going to see afresh from a different angle the beauty of the gospel. So the main point that I want us to revel in and enjoy today, it it sort of brings together a lot of what we've seen through chapters one through six of Ephesians, and it's this. The gospel redeems and transforms not only every facet of our lives, but also every strata of society. I'll say that again. The gospel redeems and transforms not only every facet of our lives, but also every strata of society. The gospel goes from top to bottom and bottom, or top to bottom and bottom to top. It it, it transforms everything. And so we're going to see that afresh today. So three points to kind of unpack that idea. The first point um, is going to be the context of slavery the context of Roman slavery. The second point, the gospel redeems slavery. And the third point, the gospel transforms mastery. So the gospel redeems slavery and the gospel transforms mastery. So let's jump into point number one and just kind of get ourselves oriented back into, you know, the world of Ephesus. Point number one, the context of Roman slavery slavery. So to get anywhere and understand this passage and see the beauty of the gospel, we need to really understand what it looked like to be a slave and to be in in the world of Rome in the first century. And this topic is of no little controversy, obviously. Um, We live in a a post-abolition era. We live post-Wilberforce, post, you know, the Civil War in the US. We live after Martin Luther King Jr., And so any mention of the word slavery or master just has all these negative connotations, has all all this baggage that goes with it. And so we see something like this in the Bible and think, how could Paul give commands to slaves to obey and masters to be good masters and not given a command to set them free or abolish slavery or, or be done with the whole system? And so some people, when they read passages like this, they just go, well, the Bible, it's wrong. Um, it's got nothing moral in it. If, if you can, you know, if it has this, then, you know, I don't trust it. Or if you're, you're a believing Christian, you come in and you think, ah, I don't get this. This is worrying to me. How could this possibly be in the Bible? Doesn't God want to liberate slaves? Why does he tell slaves to obey their masters if he wants them to be liberated? Um, it can be a confusing passage. And it can be confusing as well because we sort of have different contexts in our head. 
And so we need to kind of sort out the context so we can actually see the gold that's in this passage. So there's probably three, maybe depending on your background, three different views of slavery that come into your mind when you hear the word slave. The first may be like the African-American slavery in the US and England in the 19th century and um, 18th century. Uh, so that was, you know, stealing people and bringing them and making them work on your farms as menial labor. There was like nothing good or beautiful about that. The second context is if you know your Old Testament, um, there's actually slavery in the Old Testament. Uh, and there's a whole system to regulate slavery in the Levitical Code. And then the third context is the context we come to today, which is Roman or Greco-Roman slavery, um, which had different, you know, periods when beginning with the Greeks, it was quite, you know, it was pretty hardcore slavery. But progressively, as we get further and further into Rome's history, slavery started to change and there was actually a lot of reform that was happening at the time. So by the time we come to Ephesus in the first century, it's estimated that about one third of the population of Ephesus was likely to be a slave. One third. So potentially one in every three people were in some kind of slave relationship. Pretty much every household that wasn't a slave household likely had at least one or two or three slaves. If you were a wealthy landowner, you potentially had hundreds of slaves. Um, and so to, order, to bring order to the household in Ephesus, you had to talk about slaves and masters. They were just a part of the economic and civil and social order. Um, it was so, uh, you know, it was just so a part of life that, you know, it just was un, unthought of. They're just like slaves. They're just like, we have laborers, we have casual workers, we have people that do this. Just, you have slaves. Um, so what was it like um, to be a slave? Or how did you become a slave in this era? Well, this is where it's different from a little bit from the African-American slavery. Because in the African-American um, slavery in that time, in the new world, the antebellum period, you know, people were stolen from their country, shoved on a boat for six months, where if they didn't die from all the disease and the rats and the poison and living in filth, then they were sold neck you know with chains to a farmer and then they were slaves for the rest of their life with no opportunity of freedom but in roman slavery there were a whole bunch of different ways you could become a slave um you know doesn't make it any better but it wasn't all exactly like that um, you could become a slave just by being born into a slave household you could become a slave because uh, a slave uh, adopted you um, because it was legal for roman fathers to toss out their child if they didn't want it uh, much like abortion in our day, but they did it after the baby was born and they tossed the baby out on the garbage pile. And so if you wanted to raise a child, you could bring them up into your family and have them as a slave. Uh, another way you could become a slave was actually sadly being sold by your parents. If they didn't have the money to feed you or clothe you or look after you, they could sell you. Um, you could become a slave as a punishment for a crime. Um, so if you stole something and couldn't pay it back, you became a slave to the person. But another surprising way you can become a slave is actually voluntarily. So if you were about to go into the poverty line and you wouldn't be able to feed your family, you could sell yourself off and actually become a slave. Because to be a slave, you were adopted into a household, you were given clothes, you were given work, you were given food, and you were given some level of protection. Now, obviously, it's not ideal. I mean, they didn't have Centrelink, uh, but it was better potentially than being completely homeless and destitute. Uh, and so there is, you know, this, this world of slavery, which is 
there's a lot more breadth to it than just, you know, the African-American slavery that we often think of. Uh, and slavery wasn't actually race-based in Rome. So it wasn't, you know, because we don't like this particular type of person. Um, Roman slavery was open to all nations. So they were very tolerant. Uh, they weren't prejudiced in their slavery. They would take slaves from any country, um, just not Roman citizens. So there you go. The other difference is that their slavery wasn't um, necessarily for life. In fact, they predicted potentially about, um, <clears throat> I, don't, I can't remember the exact statistic, but most slaves uh, would be freed by the time they were 30. So when we talk about slaves in the New Testament, we're not talking about someone necessarily from zero to 70 with a chain on their neck. Um, there was actually the opportunity to become free. And in fact, Caesar Augustus had to limit the number of slaves that were being set free uh, because it was disrupting the social order because Romans were just letting their slaves go and it was interrupting the economy and the workforce. And so they made a minimum age at which you could set free a slave, which was 30. Um, so many slaves would expect to be free at one point. Slaves also did a whole bunch of different jobs. Um, so they weren't all just doing menial tasks, uh, although many were, many were agricultural slaves working from dawn till dusk, um, doing the hard jobs, you know, slaving um, in the, the traditional ways. But also slaves in Rome, um, some were educated by their masters, some were scribes, accountants, um, some worked in law. So there was, it, it wasn't all just drudgery and unskilled labor. In fact, some slaves even <clears throat> rose up to become stewards of the house and managed the entire house for the owner. And some slaves even had their own slaves um, and even owned property. So, you know, it's, it's just when we hear the word slave in the Bible, it's still bad, but it's not all that we think it is based on America's history. But then you come to how were slaves treated? Uh, and that's where you do get a bit more of a, a similarity. You see, we don't want to paint a rosy picture. Um, slavery in Ephesus and slavery in the Roman Empire wasn't all rosy. Um, slaves were considered property, not people. So they were, um, Aristotle called them living tools. So they're like a shovel that can breathe. Uh, so that was about as much worth and dignity that a slave had. So they, they were a tool that was alive. Um, and as a result, the owner of the slave had total freedom to treat their slave like a tool. Whatever they wanted to do to them, they could basically do under the law. So John Stott says this in his commentary from a historian. Slaves were sometimes whipped, mutilated, and imprisoned in chains. Their teeth were knocked out, their eyes gouged out. They were even thrown to the wild beasts or crucified. And all this sometimes for the most trivial offenses. The fact that some slaves ran away, risking if caught, branding, flogging, and even execution, while others committed suicide, is sufficient evidence that cruelty towards them was widespread. So you've got different ways you can become a slave. Not everyone's a slave for life. You did a whole bunch of different jobs that might be involved. You may be educated or not. But at the root level, you're treated as a tool, not as a person. You have no legal rights and you're often treated very, very poorly, harshly and abused with no dignity or respect. So when we come to this command of slaves obey your masters in the New Testament, we come to a very mixed picture. 
some slaves would have had a relatively stable life, potentially, with the hope of one day being set free, while others, not so much. This is why if you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives this command about slavery. Were you a slave when called, that is called to be a Christian, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So you have this image that like, if you can get free, get free. Um, but, you know, don't be overly concerned with your freedom because actually in Christ, you're already free, as we're going to see later on. And as you read through the New Testament, you'll never find a Bible verse which explicitly calls for the abolition of slavery. But it never commands the practice of slavery either in the New Testament. Instead, what we're going to see is that what God does through slavery is that he redeems it and transforms it. And in, by doing this, the seeds were sown for its eventual dismantling. So the Bible never says, get rid of the slavery and get rid of the slave masters, let everyone go free. But through the power of the gospel, and we're going to see later on, it redeems and transforms slavery in such a way that in the coming centuries, it's actually completely removed, basically, from the Roman society. So it sows the seeds for its dismantling without just obliterating it in one go. Because the easy thing for Paul to do would be to just say, all right, masters, let your slaves go. Slaves, you're free. That's Christian way. That's what God should do. But that's what we want to do with all levels of authority and hierarchy. That's what our society would do, egalitarianism. Just no husbands, wives, no men, women, no children, fathers. It's just everyone's equal. Everyone's the same. But by obliterating the tensions, we actually miss out on the opportunity for glorious redemption and transformation. We actually miss out on seeing what God's plan and best plan is. And so Paul doesn't command the obliteration of slavery, but actually the transformation of it through the power of the gospel. So what we're going to see, so this was the context, is that the gospel redeems and transforms not only every facet of our lives, but also every strata of society. How is this possible? Well, let's go on to point number two. The gospel redeems slavery. So as the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem to Samaria, to Judea, to all the ends of the earth, and goes into the Roman Empire, the message of the gospel starts to save people from all different social classes, slave and free, high and low, rich and poor. And then they all begin to gather into these little house church Zoom communities, except in real life. Remember that when you could actually see people in real life? That's what they did. They actually met together, not on Zoom. And so when all these people become Christians from different classes of society, they needed to figure out, well, how do we live now? How do we live as Christians, but as a slave? Or how do I live as a Christian and as a master? And so Paul addresses that in this part of Ephesians. So let's read verses 5 to 8 again to see what Paul says to the slaves. 
what we're going to do first is sort of just slowly walk through the text line by line. And then I'm going to give a bit of an implication or application of what that means for us. So let's walk through the text just bit by bit. Firstly, bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters. So we begin here with a command, a divinely inspired command. Slaves, obey. And there's no way around it. That's just the simple, that's what it means. If you are a slave, obey your master. Um, he even calls them earthly lords. Um, the, the word master there can be translated lord. And four times in this passage, he calls Jesus Christ lord. And so he's doing a bit of a wordplay here to say, your master is still your lord. He's not Jesus, but he's still your earthly lord. And so what that means is, is that the lordship of Jesus doesn't negate the lordship of their earthly master. Therefore, they should obey him. So when Christian slave, your master says, Publius, get up at dawn, clean the barn, make me breakfast and weed the garden. The Christian slave isn't to reply, well, in free, for freedom, Christ has set us free. I'm free. I don't have to do what you say because Jesus is my Lord. Uh, the Christian slave is to say, yes, sir, and go and do it. But not to merely obey. Paul goes even further than just, hey, obey. He's, he then outlines what it looks like, what that obedience, Christian obedience, new life obedience, obedience in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called looks like. Read on with me. And as you read, you can actually see some of this applies to our working life, though it's not a direct application because you can change jobs um, but, and they can't. But this is what um, slaves were called to do. So slaves, obey your earthly master with fear and trembling. That means a deep respect for the master. With a sincere heart. That means not an angry, malicious, brooding, uh, meh, 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 heart. A sincere heart. And look how he says this. As you would Christ. That's, that's astounding that the slave in Christ is to treat their master in the same way that they would obey Jesus Christ, their Lord. It's the same thing that he said to wives and to husbands and to children. Obey and treat people as you, they are Jesus Christ himself. He goes on in verse 6 and addresses some of their particular temptations not by way of eye service as people pleasers, i.e., you know, when the master's not looking, don't slack off. Keep working hard even when the clock's not on, even when no one's watching you. Don't just do it to please your master. Instead, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So not only are you a slave, you, you are literally in servitude. You, you have no option. You have to obey. But now the requirement for your obedience is to do it sincerely, joyously, and as you would for Jesus from the heart. You can't be an angry slave. You have to be a joyful slave. This is crazy. And he finishes it by saying, rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. 
So he finally kind of summarizes and says, this is what it looks like. Do it pleasantly and do it to the Lord and not for man. So ultimately, the slave is called to serve their master as if they were Jesus. And as they serve their master as if he was Jesus, they're actually serving Jesus. This is ridiculous. You know, if you, if you put that all together, if you were actually a slave, you'd be like, oh, I thought maybe the gospel would liberate me from slavery, but now you're actually saying, by being a slave, I'm worshipping Jesus? And I could imagine the slaves being like, oh, this is, you know, this is kind of cool, but really hard. And so Paul goes on in verse 8 and, and gives them a reward um, for their work. So they've given a command, they're given a manner in how they do it, and now there's a reward or a motivation. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. What Paul's saying here is this, is that in all of your slavery, your literal slavery, dawn to dusk, all day, every day, no days off slavery, if you do it with a good heart, as to the Lord, not as a people pleaser, not by eye service, if you do it sincerely, you are actually doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ and he sees what you're doing and he will reward you with heavenly rewards in eternity. It's incredible. And so the slave now, as they read this, like, okay, this gives me hope for today. Uh, This is not meaningless or menial work. There's actually way more going on here. And so without taking them and obliterating slavery, the slaves are actually able to be worshipping and to be rewarded even in their own context. So putting it all together in this verses 5 through 8, you've got this. You've got a command. Okay, slaves, obey your masters. You have to do it. You've got the manner. You have to basically work hard, work happy, work respectfully, and work for Jesus. And the motivation, do it and you will have an eternal reward. And that's how Paul is addressing the slaves in Ephesus, the slaves in the Christian church, the slaves who are sitting there potentially with their master next to them. They're hearing these words. But what does that mean for us today, you know, 21st century in in a free world more or less? Although, unfortunately, there's still so much slavery Um, today in the world. They estimate 30 million people or so are in slavery even today. Um, Sexual slavery, religious persecution, slavery, etc. But for us who are blessed to not be in slavery, what can we see? Well, the main point is that we can see that the gospel redeems and transforms not only every facet of our lives, but every strata of society. And so here's what I think are three implication applications from this section on slavery that actually affects us today. Number one, the gospel redeems human dignity without having to change its circumstances. The gospel redeems our human dignity without having to change our circumstances. You see, Paul addresses in verse 5 
Slaves, obey your masters. And as I said earlier, in this time period, slaves were not considered people having souls. They were living tools. They were like a, a shovel that could walk and breathe. But here, by the Spirit of God, slaves are actually addressed as a human being, as a member of the church, as a responsible person that's expected to act, that's expected to worship, that's expected to obey, that's expected to hear and listen and understand what is going on. If you were a slave in the Ephesus church and you heard that you were being addressed by God through this letter, you would have been blown away. Could you imagine what it would have been like to be a slave? All your life you've been devalued. All your life you've been depraved, potentially, abused, looked over, barked orders at, never thanked, never loved, never appreciated, never respected. And then you hear the message of the gospel, that there's a new king, and his name is Jesus, not Caesar. And in Jesus' kingdom, slaves have a name. Slaves have a soul. Slaves have worth. Slaves have dignity. Slaves have a place in the church. They have a role to play. They're not a living tool. They're a living soul. You're not expected only to work, but also to worship. You see, even just by addressing slaves, we see that their dignity is redeemed. They're treated as a living, breathing image of God and no longer as a tool. And we can see that that actually applies to us today because if the lowest, most denigrated position in all of human society is considered a valuable human person with dignity and worth, then no matter what circumstance you find yourself in today, the gospel redeems your dignity. Everyone was born with the image of God, distorted and marred by sin. But Jesus came to liberate us from our sin. And he actually calls us by a new name. And so no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, no matter what sins you've committed, no matter what sins have been committed against you, no matter the shame, the disrespect, or the devaluing you may feel from others around you in your life, Jesus calls you by name. Jesus expects you to worship him. And Jesus knows you intimately. He knows your face. He knows your place. And he knows your role in life. The gospel redeems human dignity from the lowest to the highest in every strata of society. That's the first thing we see here, that the gospel redeems dignity for humans. The second thing we see is that the gospel redeems work. Work goes from being menial to meaningful for these slaves. You see, verse 6 says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. You see, when the slave serves his master, he's not just sweeping for the master's sake. He's actually sweeping for Jesus. And so God elevates the slave to a servant of Christ. And thereby doing that, he elevates all of our positions 
If the lowest of society is a servant of Christ, then you and I too are servants of Christ. And if the work of a slave in Rome, cleaning toilets, picking berries, making the master's bed, doing whatever he says, whenever he says it, if that work is meaningful to God and will be rewarded on the last day, so too will all your menial and seemingly meaningless work in your nine to five or your, you know, 3 a.m. to 11 p.m., what your, whatever your days look like, all of that work is meaningful to God. It says in verse eight that we will be rewarded whether slave or free for the good that we do. So if a slave's work is now meaningful, then all of our work is meaningful. The gospel redeems the slave from futility and gives him inherent worth and dignity to his work. You see, the real work in life, the real God-honoring, God-glorifying stuff is not being a pastor. It's not being a missionary. My work and your work and all of our spheres of life all are meaningful to God and all will be rewarded by him. He sees everything that is done. He doesn't just look down and see missionaries and pastors and say, well done, good and faithful servant. He sees moms and dads and and plumbers and accountants and lawyers and teachers and nurses and every single sphere, everything that everyone's doing, God sees it and he will reward it. And so as you go to work tomorrow and as you parent tomorrow and as you care for people tomorrow, know that. God has redeemed your work. It's not menial. It's meaningful. It's not futile. It's for the Lord. And if you do it unto him for his gaze and for his glory, he will reward you. Even if it feels like you're just clicking a button on a screen or doing some task that's repetitive, God sees it and it brings him glory because you are called to work. And thirdly, we see in this little section here that the gospel even redeems relationships. You see, not only does Paul command the slaves to do a good job, but he commands them to do it with a good attitude. He commands them to actually respect and have appreciation for their master. And so in the, in the Ephesian church, the slaves and the masters weren't meant to be enemies. They were meant to be friends. The gospel is able to remove the hostility even between a slave and a master and make them brothers and sisters in Christ, worshipping the same Lord together. And so if Jesus Christ can redeem even a slave and a master in Rome, he can redeem any relationship. He can bring about reconciliation in our lives. Whatever relationship you think is untouchable, is unredeemable, irreconcilable. I think they would have thought that about slaves and masters in the ancient world. But the power of Jesus Christ to call people out of darkness into light is the same power that can reconcile you to that person that you are unreconciled with through grace, through repentance, through forgiveness and love. If a slave and a master can be reconciled, we see that all relationships even the most hurt ones, by God's grace only, can also be reconciled. So to put it all together in this first section here, you've got 
the command, obey your masters, the manner, work hard, work joyfully, work for Jesus, work for your eternal reward. And we've got these implications that the gospel redeems human dignity. Everyone is seen. The gospel redeems work. Nothing is menial. Everything is meaningful. And the gospel is able to redeem relationships, to bring together antagonistic forces, not by obliterating their roles, but bringing them together in fellowship through Jesus Christ while still being in slave and master positions. The gospel redeems and transforms not only every facet of our lives, but every strata of society. Finally, point number three. The gospel transforms mastery. So Paul doesn't just have a word for the slaves. He has a word for the masters too. And we're going to see that just like the gospel redeems slaves, it actually transforms the masters. Behold the power of Jesus Christ, the King of heaven and earth. Let's read verses 9, and this point will be short. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So I'm just going to apply this very quickly and just kind of pull it apart in two points. Firstly, we see here that the gospel transforms authority. In five simple words, Paul turns the whole slave and master relationship upside down. Masters, he addresses them and says, do the same to them. Do the same to them. You are in the position of absolute authority as a master in Roman society. And now you're being commanded to have the same attitude as a slave. John Stott explains it like this. What does do the same to them mean? It means if you hope to receive respect, show it. If you hope to receive service, give it. It is an application of the golden rule. However masters hope their slaves will behave toward them, they must behave toward their slaves in the same way. Paul admits no privileged superiority in the masters, as if they could dispense with the very courtesies they expect to be shown. So authority is transformed. Instead of masters having all the power and getting to do whatever they want, however they want to, under Christ the King, they are to treat their slaves the way that their slaves treat them. They are to love their neighbor as they would love themselves. It's incredible for a Roman society, for a Roman master to hear this. I need to serve and love and respect and admire and cherish and work hard for my slave. They're my rake. They're my broom. They're my toilet cleaner. Do the same to them. So it transforms their mastery. And of course, Paul says, well, stop your threatening because you can't, you know, you can't use your authority to threaten death and punishment on your slaves if you're doing the same to them. And so it completely turns it upside down. 
And wherever we have authority in our lives, wherever we find ourselves in a position of authority, whether as in work as a supervisor or a manager, in the field of politics or at school as a teacher, at home as a parent, as a husband, we are to have that same attitude. Do the same to them. How we want to be treated as an authority, treat those under our authority and stop your threatening, which is what Paul, again, says to the fathers in um, verse 4 of chapter 6. So what's the motivation to change? Well, how does he kind of help the masters see that they ought to be changing their authority? Well, so the kind of implication number one for the masters was the gospel transforms their authority. Number two, the gospel transforms their status. Read verse um, 9 again. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Why? Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Why treat your slaves well and stop your threatening? Well, because the gospel teaches you that you are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You have a master. You are not the ultimate master. And that through Jesus, all men and women are equal. There is no privileged status in heaven where masters get off scot-free like they did in Rome. A master could do whatever he wanted to be slave and he'd never get in trouble. Not so in the kingdom of God. Slave and free man are equal. Man and women are equal. Child and parent are equal. And so there is no partiality with God. If you sin against your slave, you'll be judged by God. And there is no get out of jail free card just because you're the slave owner. So instead of using your status as a position to bring other people down or to get from other people what you want, the way of the kingdom of God, the way of the unification of all things, the way that heaven comes to earth, is that those who have positions of authority and status lay it down to serve those who are under their authority. We don't obliterate positions of authority. Paul doesn't say to the masters, you're no longer masters. No, they were still masters. They didn't get rid of the slavery system. Instead, much harder, he transforms it. So that masters, by the power of the gospel, have to undo everything that's natural in them and everything by right that they can do under Roman law. And it's the same for us. Wherever we find ourselves with a position of status or privilege that allows us to do things and get away with things, rather than abusing that status, we are to remember that there is no partiality with God, that we will be judged by him, not by those around us. And we'll be judged by his law, not by the laws set in this country. So the gospel transforms authority. Transforms it from being selfish to selfless. It transforms status by leveling the field. And this is what is so remarkable about Jesus. You see, Jesus is the master of the universe. But what does he do? He comes as a slave. He has all authority in heaven on earth and he lays it down and comes under the authority. You see, Jesus models to us what it looks like to be both master and slave. He's the master, the king of all, and he lays down his privilege to serve. 
He's the master who becomes a slave so that we can become free. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And because the Son of Man gave his life not to be served, but to serve, we are set free. We're set free from slavery to sin, from slavery to status, from slavery to futility, from slavery to the destructive work of Satan. And we're set free not to become totally free, but to become slaves and slaves of Christ, servants of others, laying down our freedom and our privilege for the good of those around us. And so the gospel has this incredible power to go into any society, any structure, any circumstance and completely redeem it and transform it, no matter what is going on. And I think that's an incredibly powerful and beautiful thing we see through this passage, that even though we don't live in a slave master relationship, we can still see the power and the beauty of the gospel. And we're still called in some ways to apply this, to work hard, to lay down our lives for others, to be good authorities where we have it. Could you imagine how this radically changed lives, households and societies? Could you imagine the, the, the masters sitting in the, you know, the house church in Ephesus hearing that they're to love their slaves with brotherly affection and slowly having to repent and, and put away the whip and put away you know, all, their, you know, all their threats? And the slave who you know, was always slacking off, who was always, whenever the master walked out of the room, was like, oh, I'm just going to do whatever I want now. Um, the slave now who's working with all of his mind, all of his power, because he knows he's doing it for Jesus. Could you imagine the transformation that happened? And that's exactly what happened. The world was transformed. The seeds of transformation were sown through the power of the gospel working in individual hearts, in individual houses, in individual churches, spreading throughout the Roman society. And so that now we in the 21st century have outlawed slavery and we live in freedom because of the seed that was sown here. Do you see how amazing and kind and powerful Jesus is? The work of Jesus redeems slavery. It redeems the dignity of slaves. He redeems the work of slaves. He redeems the relationships of slaves. And so he does to us too. The gospel transforms mastery. He transforms authority to be selfless. Jesus transforms status not to be held on to, to be given away because it's all equal in the sight of God. Friends, brothers and sisters, those who are looking in and investigating Jesus Christ, see the power of Jesus to unite all things in heaven and on earth together in him.
through his death, through his resurrection, through his reign in heaven, the gospel transforms every area of our life and every strata of society. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, filled with his Holy Spirit, and live changed lives in our households for the good of the world and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you that you just are incredible. Your, your plans, your ways, your means of getting glory, your way of giving dignity and value and worth to all people, the way that you redeem people in the darkest and the most humble and the most enslaved positions you give freedom to. We thank you that you transform the world, that you have been transforming it and that you will continue to do it. Would you help us as a local church to be a part of this transforming work? Would you help us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves? Would you help us to give away our authority for the sake of helping other people to know you? Would you help us to work hard, not for man, but for you, to never be lazy, to never be people-pleasing, to not be doing it out of eye service? God, would you help breathe life into our day-to-day work so that we know that it's not menial, but it's meaningful? Would you help us to live aware that we have a reward coming, that one day for all the work that we do, the glorious and the inglorious, you will say, well done, good and faithful servant that no small act of service was unseen by you. No sacrifice will not be rewarded. And so, Lord, spur us on to work for you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.